Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the live media and current affairs panel show for the week commencing the 14th of September. My name is Mariam Chihab and tonight we're looking at Vodafone illegally accessing the phone records of Fairfax journalist Natalie O'Brien, the dangers of live microphones as Immigration Minister Peter Dutton found out last week and the Brisbane Times shocking homepage that reignited discussion around domestic violence. Joining me in the studio, I have Jess Hill, investigative reporter for Radio National's Background Briefing. Hi, Jess. Hi, Mary. Ben Grubb, technology editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. Hi, Ben. Good evening. And freelance journalist Claire Connolly. Hi, Claire. How's it going? To have your say on the issues that we're discussing, get in touch through Twitter. Our handle is at 4th Estate AU, all letters, no numbers. Now, tonight the Parliamentary Press Gallery is in a frenzy after Malcolm Turnbull issued a challenge to Tony Abbott's Prime Ministership. I wanted to start off the show by asking you guys, to what extent has the media set the scene for this leadership challenge, Jess? Um, Well, hasn't the East Coast Twitterati brought on the leadership challenge? That's what we've heard um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, I don't know. I guess Malcolm Turnbull strikes me as slightly old school, as someone who's been plotting this for a very long time. And I think that there are factors beyond... I guess the chatter of the press gallery and the um, the creation of the conditions, um, you know, such as the coming by election, the fact that Parliament's going to be out for three weeks. There's there's a lot more to it than I think just the press gallery, the analysis of the polls, and all of those sorts of factors. Claire, what do you think? I feel like it's been treated as a foregone conclusion that Turnbull would take over the leadership from Abbott from the day that Abbott took over the leadership from Turnbull. The extent to which the press has influenced this outcome, I think in this case is actually kind of minimal. I think in this regard, the press has merely been reflecting public sentiment. I don't think Abbott was ever a populist leader. He came to power through a very unique set of circumstances on the ticket of not being Labor. And, you know, after two years, we've had a pretty long shopping list of gaffes and... Um, situations where maybe the ideological base of the party is out of step with the public. So in the sense that the press has played a part, I really think it's minimal in this sense. That's not to say that past leadership ballots haven't been brought on by the press. Uh, I think that Julia Gillard's one in particular, the last one, uh, was brought on by press reports that she had read uh, and she just wanted to bring it to a head and uh, get it done with. Um, but in this case, yeah, I agree with uh, the rest of the panel that you know the media haven't really driven this one. Yes, they've been reporting about it. Yes, there's been Canberra gossip. Um, but in this case, it, there's just a lot of conditions that have been met. Well, on to our first topic then. Over the weekend, Vodafone admitted that one of their employees illegally accessed the phone records and text messages of Fairfax investigative reporter Natalie O'Brien. The breach of privacy occurred in January 2011 after O'Brien broke an exclusive story about major security breaches at Vodafone, which saw the details of millions of customers available online. Now, Vodafone has come out and denied any allegations of of improper behaviour, saying in a statement that an investigation into the breach found the employee did not act on management's behalf. However, internal emails leaked to The Australian show that Vodafone was well aware of the hacking but chose not to inform O'Brien about it. 
Claire, what do you think of Vodafone's excuse that management wasn't involved in the breach? That claim has been thoroughly debunked by The Australian. The head of fraud management and investigations of the Vodafone group, Colin Yates, wrote to the head of Global Corporate Security Director, Richard Knowles, warning him that this hack could be disastrous for the company's reputation should it come out. So I don't really know where this allegation has come from and I don't know why Vodafone is using it as an excuse. And also it's kind of throwing under the bus the probably mid-level staffer that executed this hack on behalf of the company. Mostly these kind of investigations over leak come from one direction and that's the top. Jess, do you agree? Yeah, well what I loved about that email from the fraud investigator at Vodafone was that he warns that all this reputational damage can occur and then suggests that we have to cover it up. Um, so coming from the, the head of fraud investigations at Vodafone, um, it seems that, that if that's if that's the kind of cultural attitude that they were taking, it sort of beggars belief um, that that did not that that message did not make it to the top unless there was some sort of concentrated effort to protect the managing director and not tell him on purpose. But that seems unlikely given all of these. I mean, there was the head of digital security that was involved. I mean, there were very, very high level people involved in this. So it seems extremely unlikely. Ben? Yeah, it, it, I guess this yeah really frustrates me. I mean, I, I've been told, so when, uh, so I write about telco issues and, uh, you know, about privacy and all that. Um, I've been told in the past that uh, another telco by one of their employees, not Vodafone, uh, that they keep an eye on all outgoing calls to journalists. Um, that, I guess, you know, I, I, I ask everyone here, like, is that okay? Like, when, when is it not okay? I think the Vodafone case is definitely not okay. It looks like they've gone through the, the call charge record logs of the journalists. In this case, you know, you could have a, an employee policy that says, you know, we're going to watch everyone that you call. You're using our infrastructure, you know, we're providing you with work phones. Um, don't call these, uh, you know, don't protect confidential information. Like, you have that as part of your... Um, your workplace uh, policies but yeah in this case it was um, very concerning and I I think that Vodafone should have issued a, a statement that kind of clarify matters because at the moment it's it's pretty clear from the emails that they knew that these senior people knew of what was going on here and that if it became public uh, that would be disastrous for them in trying to repair their reputation with the whole voter fail situation where people were getting very bad reception uh, on the network but anyway the man, the former chief executive of Vodafone uh, was grilled on this today uh, in the Senate uh, in a Senate hearing about the NBN because he's now the head of the NBN uh, he said he didn't recall uh, any specifics around it but he did he did say that he knew about some sort of fraud investigation that was ongoing um, but he had you know he couldn't recall he couldn't recall what specifically it was about what does it say to you that Vodafone failed to notify Natalie O'Brien that her private messages were accessed well, they've, in my view, uh, you know, they've they've breached someone's privacy. That's a breach of the Privacy Act. Uh, there's also an issue with, you know, uh, so it falls under a number of acts. There's the Telecommunications Act, and then there's the Privacy Act. Uh, they've potentially uh, breached the Privacy Act, and they've uh, potentially broken the law. And there's criminal charges associated with that under the Telecommunications Act. Uh, Claire, do you think Vodafone should have told Natalie O'Brien about the? their access to her account? In a word, 
Yes, absolutely. In the point of her reporting, O'Brien would have had to contact Vodafone to give them the right of reply over the allegations in her stories that their security systems weren't working in the way that they're meant to be working. So I don't know why they wouldn't extend her the same courtesy. But I've just say, you know, it's sort of like saying should News Limited have told its vict- hacking victims that they were being hacked? No, they wouldn't have done that because they were hacking them in secret. <laughs> and Vodafone was hacking Natalie O'Brien in secret. So, of course, they wouldn't tell her, you know. Um, but it's, it's completely abominable. I guess now we live in this age where any digital communications that we have are not private, you know. Um, it's we, we assume that we're talking on the phone, that this is private, that we're emailing, this is private. But these are accessible at any time from the government through to security agencies, through to phone providers, through to people who just buy a cheap hacking app, you know, a couple of hundred bucks a year, you can get access to a phone's entire contents, you know, and you see that a lot in um, in domestic violence situations where perpetrators stalk their exes and, and can find out exactly what they're doing, where they're going. So I think that this this idea that we're living um, in an age of where we have private communications is kind of being demolished. I think it's also a good reminder to, to journalists that, yeah, you you need to have a burner phone. You for anything, for regardless of whether it's you know deep throat kind of government uh, story where you're trying to uncover something that they've done wrong. In this situation, it was a, a, a corporate entity that had uh, allegedly had their you know a, a, they didn't necessarily have a privacy breach as such, but they had a vulnerable website that had shared generic passwords that you could use to log into to the database of every customer, uh, and and that was a, a real issue. But, you know, I think that it's, as I said, a good reminder that we should all use, uh, you know, things like Wicca, the encrypted messaging app, use PGP email encryption and and have a burner phone. Um, And I I think that media organisations should also be uh, providing these types of services to to journalists. It's not necessarily the journalist that has to have that responsibility. The the media company should be stepping up and providing it. And also, if you are going to blow the whistle, do it in person. I mean, I know there has to be an initial communication, but you need to keep them short. You need to keep them sharp. And you need to, A, not do it from a government phone, not do it from a corporate phone, maybe from a call box somewhere out of your area. Turn the GPS on your phone off so that you can't be tracked. It is more difficult these days to blow the whistle, but it's not impossible. But certainly avoiding the prying eyes of your employers by not using their infrastructure is a pretty good start. Yeah, like I actually have sources. I'm working on a story about um, the family court at the moment. And I have parents who are so afraid of their their um, phones being hacked that they call me on burners um, and they don't email. In fact, one person was um, so reluctant to have any communications tracked at all that they refused to even organize a meeting with me so that all had to be done through third parties these aren't even whistleblowers these are parents so do you think this revelation will make vodafone customers especially journalists question whether vodafone is the safest telco for them yes absolutely yeah jess i I question whether any telco has any ethics nowadays (laughs) i think after snowden we've seen that you know so many information company you know information companies are just willing to give up their customers um at the drop of a hat so um i don't know i guess trust no one is probably the best um call to make i I think the same i I actually think that um people are Probably people don't. Te- I, I I think after the Edward Snowden revelations, uh, we didn't see people marching on the street. 
like you know in america there was a a lot a lot stronger response i mean the government responded like here it was like oh you know this is a u.s thing we don't comment on national security whatever um you know i, I was kind of disappointed by that which kind of made me feel that people don't necessarily care about their privacy uh they do to a certain extent if their nudes are published online or it gets to that uh, perspective like the Ashley Madison hack, everyone cared, everyone hated them. In this instance, I'm not sure whether people will make a ch- like if they're on Vodafone, they'll go, Oh, I don't like Vodafone now because of this. I think they'll stay on for the price, to be honest. Claire? I think it's an interesting time because clearly there's trust that's been eroded between customers and the services that they use. Um, to the extent of the US outcry, it probably helps that they have a piece of legislation for which they are guaranteed the right to privacy. It's in their constitution. It's a foothold of the way that they live their lives. And particularly in America, which is really an individualism kind of government, there's more of a legal precedent to push back. In Australia, we don't have an enshrined right to freedom of speech. We don't have an enshrined right to privacy. We have a right to freedom of communication, which is the thing that protects the privilege of prime ministers and ministers and backbenchers to say whatever it is that they want to say within the confines of parliament. Get to the parliament house steps and everything that you say goes on the record and is covered by the same laws and principles the rest of us have to follow. I think it probably wouldn't hurt for Australia to have some kind of legal precedent so that people can actually start to take this seriously. So what might or should the government or ACMA in this case do about this breach? Um, And do you think it can happen again? I think it can happen again. I think it's probably already happening. Um, I'm sure this isn't an isolated incident and I'm sure Vodafone isn't the only company that's been doing it. Um, The responsibility for investigating and prosecuting this comes down to the ACMA and to the Privacy Commissioner and they they dual share that responsibility. Um, I'm aware that the police have been notified in regards to concerns over Vodafone's violations of privacy and those have been passed on to the ACMA. Um, We don't know yet whether the ACMA or the Privacy Commissioner will or have launched any kind of investigation. So watch this space. They're definitely talking today is what what I've heard. But yeah, they can either start their own motion investigation uh, or wait for the journalist uh, or someone else to complain or lodge a complaint and then it might start a a long, lengthy process as I have uh, seen before, uh, having to complain to the Privacy Commissioner before. It took about two years for some action. You're listening to Fourth Estate with Jess Hill from Radio National, Ben Grubb from the Sydney Morning Herald and freelance journalist Claire Connolly. Immigration Minister Peter Dutton was caught out last week making light of climate change. He was fronting the press to talk about Syrian refugees with Prime Minister Tony Abbott, who had just returned from climate change talks in Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea. Now, the two didn't realise that a microphone was picking up on every word they said. Noting the conference on refugees was running late, Dutton joked it was running to Cape York time. Abbott laughed and said his meeting on climate change in Papua New Guinea also ran late, to which Dunham replied, quote, Time doesn't mean anything when you're about to have water lapping at your door. Now, the jokes had been labelled vulgar and offensive by outraged Indigenous and Pacific Islander leaders, and Peter Dutton was forced to apologise. Jess, does the media have the right to air private conversations by politicians at public events? Well, I guess, you know... Legally, yes, it's a public conversation. There's a microphone above them. Absolutely, they do. Um, Ethically, is it the right thing to do? Um, I've had a few conversations with people about that recently. And um, 
you know, we all make bad jokes about subjects we shouldn't. And if there was a boom mic in the Radio Current Affairs section of the ABC, I'd be horrified at what people would hear. But the difference here is that that joke that Dutton made came from a government minister, part of a government who has set about dismantling climate change policies in this country, set about demolishing the renewable energy target, um, and, and then is joking about the realities of climate change and how they actually will affect people that citizens of this country. Um, that's pretty heinous. Um, and it's, it, it's kind of it, like it's, it's, it's so much in the public interest because of their policies on climate change. I think the, uh, the, the notion of it being a private conversation is sort of a moot point. Claire, do you agree that it was in the public's interest? I don't even know how it can be classified as a private conversation. It was a public event. There was a boom mic ahead of them. That signified that it was a public event. That conversation was not private in nature. Private is going behind a closed doors where there are no mics and there are no c- cameras and having a conversation that is itself private. This is a public interest that we're serving. It not only shows the government's attitude towards climate change, it shows Peter Dutton's attitude towards immigrants in general. Outside of the Pacific nations, we have a refugee crisis that is taking over Europe that Australia is being drawn into. We've got the greatest movement of people across the globe seen since World War II. And he has absolutely no regard for these people for whom climate change is an everyday concern. Of course it's in the public interest. Ben, um, what factors are taken into consideration when a news organisation decides to broadcast something like this? Well, I guess, um, you know, all of the things that have just been mentioned, um, you know, you have to ask yourself, is it in the public's interest? And I mean, if it's a government minister um, and they're, say, they're on Ashley Madison, because uh, this would have been, this was a discussion that we, we had um, at the office, um, you know, is, is that enough? Okay, well, no. Are they being a hypocrite? Is the next question, uh, you know, there was a, a pastor who was outed in the U.S. Perhaps that's there's public interest in that, um, but there is not there are, there are there's not always a public interest in airing these types of things. But in this case, it certainly wasn't a private conversation, um, you know, and it, it's much like the the remarks that um, Prime the Prime Minister Abbott was making overseas to um, the. Uh, the troops at one stage, I can remember he was talking about um, things over there and they that got aired and he was confronted about that and he was very kind of, wouldn't say anything, 30 seconds of like nodding uh, nervously. Uh, he knew he'd said the wrong thing. Um, but So I guess yeah, there are a number of things that go through your head um, that are beyond, I mean, it's not always in the public interest. It, it is not and you have to make a judgment call. But And it's also like, you know, this is not just um, a mistake or a joke gone wrong. You know, this is a minister who rallies behind a prime minister who says that coal is good for humanity and then simultaneously believes that water is going to be lapping on the door of our Pacific neighbours. So it's sort of the the double narrative going inside or going on inside that minister's head is quite frightening. It really spelled the end for, for Abbott's government. I think it was really the last straw and the embarrassment that was wreaked down upon this government in the past week created the perfect conditions for Malcolm to call for a spill. So mm. if the government wants to look anywhere at how this could have happened, they might want to check their own doorstep. You, you do have to you do have to get an idea of, you know, the character of people um, to if, if you're going to be voting for them. So I think it's, it is important. Like, I wonder what conversations go on behind closed doors. Um, and I think that the public would want to know that as, as well. 
well, um, you know, the type of character that these people are. Robust conversations. Yes. Jeff, um, <laughs> Scott Morrison certainly seemed aware of the boom mic. Politicians are usually very media savvy, even during more, um, even more so, sorry, during press conferences. Was it surprising to you that he could be so careless? That Peter Dutton could be so careless? He's not an exemplary minister. Um, I don't know. Apart from passing judgment on Peter Dutton's capabilities, um, I I guess he just genuinely did not see it there. ScoMo, on the other hand, is an exemplary minister and he would have known exactly what was happening. Now, why did he not end that joke earlier? That's a question you've got to ask. Um, I think, um, I mean, the look on his face was certainly one of, it wasn't one of great dismay, let's put it that way. Claire, uh, Dutton apologised two days after the incident. Do you think he was apologising for his jokes or the fact that he was recorded by a boom mic? Let it be clear, Dutton didn't apologise. Dutton came out and said he had already apologised. <laughs> it's a very important distinction to be made. And not only did he say he had already apologised, he said he had already apologised if his comment had offended anyone. He didn't apologise for his views. No unequivocal apology. He didn't qualify his views either on immigration or on climate change. He didn't offer an apology to the people of the Pacific Islands for whom climate change is a real and everyday danger. So coming out two days later and saying, oh, look, I've already said I'm sorry. Sorry, that's not good enough. Not good enough, Ben? No, it isn't. Um, And I also thought it was weird. I was going back through some of Dutton's tweets uh, today from way back. And he's like commenting on Latika Burke in the press gallery and how she was wearing a flower on her hair and she must be going out to a date. And it's just weird stuff. Um, and it just, uh, what what's going on? I can't believe that these things haven't been picked up in the, in the past. So yeah, going to that character thing again, uh, it's important. I think, you know, he, he should have apologised unequivocally rather than leaving it in the, the mess that he has. Then again, the apology would have probably been quite disingenuous. So I guess, you know, that's the thing. Do we want our, do we want our ministers to appear to be apologising, to be appear to be apologising genuinely or or is it better that they just say what they mean, which is what he did? I've got a hypothetical for the panel though. What would have happened if Dutton had properly fallen on his sword? Could it have saved the Gabba government? I think maybe. If, if Abbott had said, that was incentive, he's got to resign, mate, resign or I've got to kick you out, maybe we'd have a different result today. I don't know. It's impossible to say. But mm. I really think waiting two days and then saying, look, I've already said I'm sorry, not only is it a failure of Dutton, it's really bad politics. Well, that's the thing. But it is also part of the trend of obstinance in the government, which is like never say sorry, um, you know, die before you say sorry. <laughs> or you get someone to fall on their sword in order to save the leader, and that didn't happen. That's right, yeah. You're listening to Fourth Estate with Jess Hill from Radio National, Ben Grubb from the Sydney Morning Herald, and freelance journalist Claire Connolly. The Brisbane Times made headlines last week after the homepage, which was full of stories about violence towards women, went viral. Six front-page stories detailed brutal and deadly attacks on women over a period of 48 hours. A screenshot of the homepage was shared on social media and it led to an outpouring of anger and grief. Jess, you've reported extensively on domestic violence for Radio National and recently you won the Our Watch Gold Award for it. Do you think journalists or the public truly understand domestic violence? Um, no. Uh I'm only just starting to get my head around it and I've been looking at it for about a year. Um, I think that it's it's one of the most wickedly complex um, situations I've ever tried to understand and I've done quite a lot of reporting on electricity, so that's really telling you something. Um, I think, though, that we understand it better 
this year than we ever have, and that's thanks to you know tireless advocacy from people like Rosie Batty um, and from the stark increase in reporting. I think people are starting to understand that domestic violence is not about somebody losing control of their anger, that it is in fact about gaining control and that the, the underlying dynamic in most domestic violence situations is one of power and control. That's been the most important thing, I think, to get across to people um, so that they understand that it's not just about physical violence, that it's about... Um, um, you know, manipulation of emotion and, and psychological. Um, that's ve- that's been very important. Um, but yeah, I think there's still plenty that people don't understand. Um, it's it's difficult because there's you know perpetrators can be such vastly different people. They can be surprised to find out that they are actually abusing their wives when the police turn up, um, all the way through to people who actually serially abuse um, their victims and will actually look for a partner who is vulnerable for that type of abuse. So it's just like the spectrum of perpetration is so broad um, and and the spectrum of victims are so broad. It just goes on and on. So that's it's something, it's a long-term project for the media to get this across to the public. Claire, should uh, there be specialist training courses for journalists so they can properly cover stories that involve domestic violence? Sure, yes, absolutely. And I think most fully staffed and stocked newsrooms often do. Um, I think it's probably not a bad idea to have training for all people starting at a really young age. I think it's going to be really useful going forward if we have a nation of children and teenagers that understand how to talk to each other better than their parents do. And while I do think advocacy for these kind of things start at home, I think if you're in a situation where you're in danger or you're at risk, you may not be able to go to a family member. And I think that's where school programs and independent programs Mm -hmm. come in. Um, Even though you're not a victim of domestic violence doesn't mean that you shouldn't be up to date on how to deal with it. Um, And I think that the role of the public plays a really important role in understanding the situations that sufferers and abusers and of domestic violence go through, hopefully to prevent that kind of thing from happening and maybe to have the interception point happen just that little bit earlier Mm. where someone doesn't have to die or someone doesn't have to make the front page of the Brisbane Times for this to be a story. Mm. Ben, is the media getting better in covering domestic violence? Uh, I think so. I mean, we we try our best um, and we always try to make sure that we put um, tags at the bottom of our story around Lifeline and, and all of those uh, various services that you can use to get help. Um, I mean, Lifeline isn't necessarily one of those services for this type of thing, but uh, we do definitely list them all. And I was just thinking um, before, sometimes I do edit the, the homepage of the SMH um, and, you know, it, often Saturday morning the police media will put out uh, just a slew of you know, all the bad stuff that happened overnight. Uh, and, you know, we'll write stories about it. Uh, but And you just think, well, do we want to put every single bad story up and people are going to just read all of this bad stuff? Uh, and that, again, is a judgment call that you have to, to make. And on that particular day in Brisbane, uh, clearly it was one of those days. And I think it's important that we do cover all these events and, um, you know, follow what Rosie Batty has been um, speaking about on this topic. So Jess, do you think it was a conscious decision by the Brisbane Times to have such a powerful homepage? 
No, it wasn't. Um, I actually spoke to Kim Stevens, who was the journo, had the byline on, on most of those stories. And um, she said she was just going so fast she to, to just keep up with the stories that were emerging out of southeast Queensland because they were so horrific. I mean, it was just like just w- each one on their own was a massive story and just completely horrifying. So she actually didn't get a sense of the gravity of it until she saw the screenshot of the Brisbane Times homepage. <laughs> so, you know, so she, no, it was not a conscious decision. And that just goes to show that you, there we had a day in Queensland where five of the breaking stories at that time were about domestic violence and about, um, you know, men hunting down their partners or ex-partners. Claire, would it have been just another day if the Brisbane Times didn't have that homepage? Um, it's really hard to answer that question. Cynically, I think a lot of days are every other days. And I think sometimes when you're a journalist or when you're an editor and you're running a newsroom, you get caught up in the minutiae and you fail to see the bigger picture and you miss the fact that like, you know, five out of your nine stories are domestic violence related. But I do think it says something that there are more of these stories coming out. I do sometimes question where the public interest lies. Um, there are a lot of stories that go unreported for no good reason and a lot of the reason that for these stories making the front page is to do with the devastation that comes with them and we may not be able to cover everything and maybe even if we did would that be fair um, but I think we're having the conversation now um, and I don't really think that that question will play a role because it's happened now and, and hopefully the country's eyes have been opened about domestic violence and the role that each and every single one of us plays in helping that get better. We are out of time for Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests Jess Hill, Ben Grubb and Claire Connolly. Don't forget you can listen to the Fourth Estate podcast on 2SER.com and iTunes and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. My name is Mariam Chihab and you can catch us at the same time next week. <laughs>